did discover that if you're interested in low wages, a bookstore ranks just below retail clothing sales, except the hours are worse. Sue Grafton. typewriter, a podcast about writing and the writing life. I'm Paul, and as it's Saturday again, it's time once again for Short Story Saturday, something that we're going to try to keep doing throughout our confinement during this pandemic crisis. In any case, this is another story based on my Last Word series, and I hope you enjoy it. Stay safe, stay well. Keep on writing. Sal's Really Bad Day by Paul Combs When you do business in an urban area, you never know what you'll find with each day's dawning. Most days, Sal finds nothing but order and cleanliness on the sidewalk and street in front of the bookshop much the same in the alley and back, because Camden or Julia or Ramon have dealt with the night's leavings long before he's rolled out of bed. Today, however, they are all otherwise engaged, so it falls to Sal to ensure the outside of the last word is as attractive as the book's inside. Rising at an hour he sees more as the end of the night than the start of the day is enough to foul his mood. What he finds on this fine, clear morning nearly drives him to violence. Starting at the front of the building, in case he loses interest and decides to stop midway through, he encounters the following items, strewn the length of the storefront and beyond, five empty Corona bottles, and one half-empty Bud Light can, an odd six-pack, a box of Church's chicken with four drumsticks, each with one bite taken out, the front section of the Dallas Free Press from eight days ago, one pink cowboy boot, size 12 and a purple bra, size double D. Arranged around the bra in a symmetrical pattern are four corn cobs, presumably also from Church's Chicken, none with so much as a stray kernel remaining. Reminds me of a Saturday night in high school, he thinks, as he sweeps the last cob into a large dustpan and drops it into a bin on wheels. He'd laughed when Julia bought the rolling bin. He's not laughing now. There are fewer items as he moves down the south side of the building along Goliad Avenue, but they're no less diverse. Into the rolling bin go a blue pacifier, a Joni Mitchell cassette tape, a Chinese takeout box, red with a few grains of rice stuck to the bottom, and a small pile of cigarette butts. In all fairness, these could easily be his, as Camden has finally badgered him into not smoking in front of the store. He normally smokes on the bench across the street, but at times the shade here is better. It's not until he turns into the alley, however, that his irritation morphs into full-blown rage. Just past loose, wind-blown papers and plastic Coke bottles, not far from the back door of the shop and the stairs that lead to the apartment above it, he encounters a man stretched out on the small strip of grass that borders the alley's pavement. Whether he is dead or unconscious or simply asleep, Sal cannot tell from this distance. All three are distinct possibilities, 
as the prone form is surrounded by no fewer than 10 Coors Tall Boys and a disgusting trail of what can only be vomit. Sal thinks he can even see a kernel or two of corn in the festering mess. Sal's reaction to this tableau might seem completely out of proportion to most people, but most people don't know how often he encountered this scene as a child in Trenton. And though sociologists and various crusaders would drone on and on about the lack of mental health care, unfair economic conditions, and unfortunate drug addiction that left many on the streets, for a 10-year-old kid, even one as tough as he already was, these street denizens were terrifying. Causes be damned. Sal was instantly transported back to the old neighborhood, where Crazy Edgar walked an eight-block circuit all day, every day, muttering to himself about IBM and the devolution of the human soul, and Annie the cart lady collected only bottles that were green, and little Guido, to differentiate him from the non-homeless big Guido, constantly asked for a quarter and cursed you if you gave him a dollar instead. But it was Syracuse Sally who had forever changed his outlook on street people, in part because they shared the same name and young Sal feared such a fate, but mostly because of one incident he could never forget. Sal was walking home with his new skateboard one summer night when Syracuse stepped from behind a dumpster, smacked him in the side of the head with a plank from an old pallet, and made off with the skateboard. Sal had not lost consciousness, but it had hurt like hell and drawn a little blood. His tears were as much over the loss of his prized possession as from pain. He got the board back, of course. Before Syracuse Sally had even tried to pawn it for enough cash for a bottle of Strawberry Hill, Sal had told his father. It was perhaps a sign of the level of Syracuse's mental illness that even knowing who Mr. Terranova was and who he was with, he had still attacked his only son. Less than an hour later, Sal had his skateboard back, and Syracuse Sally was never seen again. Young Sal had never asked his father what happened. Even at that age, he knew not to ask. He did know the punishment far exceeded the crime. He knew it then, and he knew it now. But some scars never completely heal, and some change you. All of this flashes through his mind in a split second as he stands over the inert form in the alleyway. Without even realizing it, during this brief reminiscence, he has drawn the Glock from the small of his back and is aiming it directly at the man's head. He notices the gun and ponders his option. He can easily claim self-defense, even with his less than spotless record. Better still, he can simply finish the man and call Ortiz, who will spirit the body and all evidence to parts unknown. He certainly would not be missed. Sal cocks the hammer, and as the sharp metallic click echoes loudly in the silent alleyway, he hears a very unexpected voice in his head. Murdering sleeping men behind the bookstore, Julia's voice whispers, is bad for business and I would be disappointed in you. Sal blinks rapidly a few times, looks over his shoulder, then carefully lowers the hammer. He sticks the pistol back in his waistband, pulls out his cell phone, dials 311, and tells the dispatcher that there's a homeless man passed out behind the Last Word bookstore. After sweeping up the beer cans, he heads back to the shop front. He leaves the vomit trail as a present for the cops. Two cups of coffee and a stack of pancakes should have been enough to wash away the unfortunate start to Sal's day. They don't even come close. Four hours after the shop opens, he's staring at exactly $8.66 in sales for a used copy of Gravity's Rainbow, when the lone customer in the shop, 
a well-dressed woman in her 60s, decides to share her opinion of a book they have on display. I thought this one was just terrible, she says, pointing at a copy of Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge. She grins broadly as she says it, as if she knows this is one of his favorite books. Before he can reply, she continues, but at least it's not as bad as that other one, the one with all the drinking and parties and such. She begins waving her arms around like a giant bird as if this will help him figure out the title. He already has. The Great Gatsby, he asks. That's the one, she exclaims. So silly, don't you think? I actually think it's one of the greatest novels ever written in the English language, he replies, but she's not listening. The absolute worst one, she says, rubbing her chin thoughtfully, was one they made me read in high school. A guy gets up in the morning and pees off the side of the dock, and they called that literature. You can't mean the old man in the sea, he says, realizing too late that Heather has overheard the conversation. She flies at the unsuspecting woman's blindside like a linebacker out of a blitz package. But just before impact, Julia throws a perfect side body block, knocking Heather halfway across the fiction section. The woman, who has no clue of any of this happening, walks to the counter, puts several books in front of Sal, pays, and leaves. Once she's gone, Julia and Heather join her, Heather muttering threats, and Julia smiling sweetly. Sal looks at the register tape. I knew that my dignity and self-respect had a price, he says. I just figured it was more than $53.99. It's worth more than that, Julia says, once you add the sales tax. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Angry Typewriter. I hope it's been both informative and entertaining, especially for you writers out there. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I hope you'd also consider clicking on the support this podcast link on the Anchor site. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep these episodes coming, and it will also go a long way toward making this podcast completely ad-free. Thanks again.